0: Hello there. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy Flynn McLean. And Flynn, I know it's an exciting night for both of us because we have a really important guest on tonight.
1: Yes, we're talking with Charles R. Cross, the founder of Backstreets Magazine, and it is it is impossible to understate his importance in the Springsteen fan community as as we know it today. Going from those ads in the back of each magazine where people are looking for pen pals and tape traders all the way to today's uh, current BTX and the other other little fan communities as well. And it's all basically
0: because of him. It's the truth. And there's no doubt there would not be a None But The Brave podcast if there had never been a Backstreet's magazine. And we have appreciated so much all that those guys, Charlie, Jonathan, Eric, and Chris have done for this show and like everyone else, we're just really sad that the magazine is going away.
1: And we'll get uh, Charlie's feelings on the end of, of the magazine, and uh, as well as some talk about the current tour. He was in, the, in Seattle on February 27th, and he enjoyed the show. And uh, he has some interesting thoughts about the set.
0: He does, and we'll get to that in a moment. Since the last time we spoke to our Evergreen audience, there have been shows in Portland and Seattle and St. Paul last night. Portland was a show that I went to, and I got to say, I really loved it. They've turned things up several notches in the month since Tampa. Now, we've already done an episode for our Patreon subscribers where I discuss my exploits from that weekend, so we won't repeat it here. If you want to hear that, just go to our Patreon page and check it out. It's patreon.com backslash Podcast. And I'm definitely looking forward to the next time I can see the tour, even with the fairly static set list.
1: But there were some tour debuts over the last string of shows. We got I'm on Fire in Portland. Seattle got trapped and finally Land of Hope and Dreams. And then last night in uh, in St. Paul, pay me my money down and working on the highway. I know it's uh, not the direction people want, want him to go in right now. But at the same time, you, you got to start somewhere in terms of opening things
0: up. Curious choices to be sure. Now, pay me my money down. And I actually make a comment in our interview with Charlie that's coming up because we recorded that last night that I thought that perhaps somehow pay me my money down is geographically significant to St. Paul. I don't even know how I came up with that, but it was also played in 2012 in St. Paul, which seems to be a huge coincidence. Why would that song have been played twice in that building? I don't think it's been played twice anywhere else. Is there some connection as to, is it the lakes? I, I don't know. It, I have no
1: idea. Maybe, because the song is about guys uh, getting paid after being on a boat or and after delivering uh, stuff, goods, and pay me my money down when when we're done. But I don't know of any any other connection there.
0: Isn't that weird though that it was played in 2012 and now it's played again in the same building? Just because <laughs> if we go and count it up, that song's been played with the East Street Band twenty times. I think would be a lot.
1: He did it quite a bit on the Wrecking Ball tour, actually, and actually hasn't done it at all since 2014 on the High Hopes tour. But yeah, he did it quite a bit in twelve and twelve and thirteen, and so he did it at uh, at, at MetLife at least once and. I feel like I've seen it other places, so I don't think its appearance is that unusual, especially when you have the horns on tour with you like he did, uh, obviously, in 12 to 14 and obviously on the Seeger sessions back in 2006.
0: I don't know. It's a curious one for me. Now, they did drop Johnny 99 last night, which sort of fills the same space, although Pay Me My Money Down was played in the the out-in-the-street slot. That's a very strange switch
1: Actually, I get it because out in the street has all that the fan participation on the woe woes. And I Uh think there is a there is quite a bit of that going on and pay me my money down. And in the set list, Johnny 99 was actually replaced by working on the highway. And that's kind of uh, I told Claudine last night, whoa, it's another song from Electric Nebraska. So it's still kind of in that same vein from the exact same sessions, actually.
0: Thanks to Bruce Bass, I now have the total. You're right. It was played more than 20 times. It's about 35 times with the E Street Band for Pay Me My Money Down. The second time it's played in St. Paul, which was – the first time was November 12, 2012. That's an archive release, right?
1: I believe so. That's the second night in in St. Paul. and That included Devils and Dust and Loose Ends. Yes. wasn't like was it wreck on Highway" or "Stolen Car" it was done in the first five or six songs, which I always thought was a very interesting choice.
0: It just seems a coincidental to me that it showed up there again. So I don't know what made him pull that song out. It was sound checked, working on the highway, which of course is off born in the USA, makes a little bit more sense because you know he's going to hit those songs, and he's been looking at that period the last week, as Flynn mentioned. "I'm on Fire" and "Trapped" were both played. Earlier in the week, but the pay me my money, Dan, I think everyone knows my feelings on the Seeger sessions. <laughs> we don't need that being played with the e Street Band. I understand he's got the large band on stage with the horns and it, it fits it well. And I think it also gives him a little bit of a breather, but not the choice I would make to put into the show, especially since so much stuff has not been played yet. Darkness well, on the Edge of Town has not been played. Now Pay <laughs> Me My Money Down has been played. That's, that n- doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
1: That is weird. And and certainly the inclusion of Pay Me My Money Down could be a little bit tone deaf on, on Bruce's part after after last summer's ticket fiasco when the ticket prices just soared inc- incredibly so in, due to that dynamic pricing. So that's uh, a, it's a little bit weird of, of an inclusion to say the least.
0: I'm, I know people were saying that. I'm going to cut him some slack. I just don't really think that those sorts of things enter into his mind when he's making up a set list. I, I get it. I understand why people may, are making that remark, but I, I just think we got to cut him a break. At some point, it's it's a little too much. And I, I think to, to say that he shouldn't be playing songs, I, I don't know. It's I, That one I disagree with.
1: Well, it's just it's just so deliberate, pay me my money down. Well, gee, Bruce, we did pay you a lot of money down, so you got it, buddy. <laughs> but All yeah, right. on, the, on the other hand, I do also understand that the ticket fiasco was probably the furthest from his mind when he writes a set list, and if he feels like playing a song in the moment or playing a song that night, he's not going to think about how it's really going to look compared to what happened seven, eight months ago or even the on-sales that happened uh, over the last month.
0: That's the thing. And now, again, I would rather not have Seeger Sessions material in an East Street Fan <laughs> Show, but when he's making these set lists up, he's just thinking, look, what, am, what do I want to play tonight? What's going to be fun? All that stuff. And I, I just think that the idea that it would be linked to anything else or that he shouldn't play a song because of something that happened, is that's something I can't agree with. Okay. Well, I,
1: I see it both ways. As I said, I see the ticket issue and I see the fact that, as you just said, He
0: looks at a show and what he wants to play that night. I get that. And we'll see how the show continues to develop from here. I really think as he progresses to Belmont and then into Europe, where there's going to be multiple nights, he's going to make changes and things are going to loosen up. Now, there's one last thing before we bring in Charlie. In a previous episode, you had mentioned there might be a date at the Sound on Sound Festival. That festival is now announced and Bruce is not a part of it
1: yeah I don't know what happened my uh I got that information from f- literally three different sources, three different reliable sources or usually reliable, and I guess the contracts just hadn't been signed, and it just wasn't totally in place and I guess whatever deal they thought they had just fell through but I'm as surprised as anyone else about that one.
0: Yeah, there were some other reports today that they just the contract negotiations fell apart. So it happens sometimes. I've had it happen many times. Yeah, I guess that that happens quite a bit. It does, and I think now let's get to tonight's main event. Flynn, take it away. Our guest tonight really needs no introduction. He's the founder of
1: Backstreet's magazine and editor for the first 20 years of its existence. And he's also the author of three New York Times bestseller books. Charles R. Cross, welcome back to None But The Brave. Thank you. This is a real treat for us. Very much so. Very much so. You were a legend back when I started reading Backstreet's in the fall of 88. So this is definitely a huge honor.
0: Let me ask you first. Obviously, Backstreet's is closing. We've spoken to Chris, and I know F- Flynn has heard that he does not really want to talk right now. He's going to let the February 3rd statement speak for itself. And he's the voice of the decision to shut down the magazine. But you are the founder. It's a huge part of your life. How are you feeling now that it's going to be over? Yeah, well,
2: I, I you know, I can't help but feel some level of grief, both the idea of uh, Backstreet's no longer existing. I mean, in addition to starting Backstreet's and contributing to it for however many years it's been, uh, 43 years? Am I doing the math right or am I- Yes, just, just over 42. 43 years, which is you know a lot, lot of my life. It, it's also been something that I go to as a user. And when the tour started and I wasn't able to kind of go to backstreets and be updated on things, I felt the grief from that side of it as well. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, the decision, um, you know, Chris wants to be the person to talk about that, but I think, and I'm writing an editorial for the, for the final issue. So I, I have my piece on that, but, but one thing that everybody needs to realize is that, this isn't necessarily the story of the end of Backstreet's. It's the story of the end of print. Uh, You know, there's a little, I've had people write me and go, how can Backstreet's close? And, you know, just two weeks ago, Parade Magazine, which had been in the Sunday newspaper for a hundred years announced they're no longer going to publish. And, you know, so many magazines I've written for as a journalist over the years don't exist anymore. So if someone thinks the, the brain trust of Backstreet's, me, Chris, and the other editors can figure out the paradigm of print and we should have been able to figure it out better than Time, Inc. and Entertainment Weekly and Parade Magazine, they're they're, they're dreaming a pie in the sky. I mean, it, it just, there is the reality. The internet has, uh, you know, Bruce Woolley said the video killed the radio star, but to some degree, the internet continues to kill Print and the idea of print is a is a forum, uh, and that's really sad for me. Beyond Backstreets, you know, I'm a journalist and have not had a job in pretty much my entire life. Um, so I miss uh, print. I, I love print, and I loved getting Backstreets in the mail, even when I wasn't the editor and publisher anymore. And there's some sadness on my part to go. Are the ones on my shelf the final ones of both Backstreets and a 100 other magazines that no longer come out.
1: Looking back on on your 20 years when you were the editor, what uh what events do you guys think you really nailed your 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 coverage
2: of? Well, certainly the live shows. Um, you know, Backstreet started because I uh felt like it seems absurd to note, but I felt that the press wasn't covering Bruce Springsteen enough. That <laughs> not enough people knew what a great live act he was. That literally was my motivation. And that, of course, uh, the, the story of Backstreet's really began in about 1975. It, the magazine didn't come out until 1980, but I was writing for a college newspaper, you know, 17 years old or something in, in that year. And, uh, and Bruce came through town and um, the editor of my college newspaper had me write a story and then killed it. And uh, I've, I've written about this many times before in Backstreet, so there's no I'm not giving away a secret I haven't said before, but uh, I do cite that in my editorial coming up. And, you know, the editor took a copies of my copies of Time and Newsweek and and cut them up and spelled out the word hype and then illustrated <laughs> my story that he rewrote to say Bruce was just hype to totally spin it a different way than the story that I'd written. So my story got killed, and in a way, that was the seed for Backstreets. It was like, you know, it's been said many times before. If you if you want a voice, own the printing press, and uh, you know, starting a fanzine or a magazine is a way to do that. I've I've done that now with a few magazines, and um, that was kind of the seeds of it. But it seems absurd now that you think in 1975, I thought not enough people in Seattle knew who Bruce Springsteen was. And I needed to preach the gospel about how Grady was live. But that story I've heard again and again and again from people that are that are from that era. Um, one guy that uh, I went to the concert with in Seattle um, uh, last week uh He saw Bruce in 1973 at the Troubadour. I think it was 73. We couldn't quite figure the date out, and I haven't looked it up, but he he saw a CBS record showcase. And, you know, we're all there talking about how many shows you've seen and all that can kind of be a badge of honor, but sometimes people really get off the the deep end on that, thinking it somehow makes your relationship with music more special. Um, Here, this guy saw Bruce in the Troubadour, Um, that's and we're just like okay, we bow to you. Uh, yeah, and and then, and then of course, it can be argued that guy can say it's all been downhill since then. Um, you know, many of us on this tour have multiple feelings about how this tour works or doesn't work, and you know, but but the people I know that saw those shows they almost all universally say, unless you were, you know, you saw the 1976 tour. Or you saw 10 dates on the Born in the USA tour, you know, in the first week, you know, um, people, it, it, they kind of debate it like, you know, it's a vintage of wine and like Beaujolais, you know, uh, 1973 vintage was better than a later one. But it's, it's still delicious wine. And, uh, you know, but but Backstreet's was started by me wanting to preach that to other people. That was my concept. And I, I'm in my long-winded answer, your question was, what did Backstreet's do the best? And in my opinion, the very best thing it did was cover the live shows as if they were a news story. And over the years, by doing tour reports, both in the magazine and online, we were really able to capture uh, the essence of what those live shows were like, with photography, with notes, with alternative set lists with what was paid, played in the sound check, you know, we were able to really cover those. And maybe with this tour as it is, um, you know, the decision to end Backstreet's happened before the tour, but given that the set list is varied about 2% from show to show, or I don't know what it is statistically, but not very much, uh, I don't, maybe even the purposes of that uh, in the internet age and in this current tour has sort of gone by the wayside as well.
0: I think that will change, but we'll get to 2023 in a minute. I want to talk more about the legacy of Backstreet's because when you started in 1980, you couldn't have imagined. I was blown away myself that the closing of the magazine was covered by every major Hollywood trade. It was in the Washington Post. It was in the New York Times. You've really created an amazing legacy here. And I think it stands as probably if not definitely the best publication ever dedicated to a single artist. Did you ever think that that would be the case when you were handing it out outside the Seattle Coliseum in 1980, that it would rise to that level? Um,
2: You're going to laugh at this, but maybe I did in a way, because (laughs) you, you, uh, you sort of go into the idea of either writing a book or writing an article or doing a magazine, you kind of have to go into that with a little bit of hubris to even get the idea off the ground. Um, you know, we're talking now about the end of print and how many print magazines are failing. But I remember even at the period that Backstreet's was starting the statistics for how many magazines start and fail within one year or two, my walls are lined with ones I've written for that were very well financed. But uh but, 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 no, of course not. I didn't think it would have that kind of longevity, and um, but I think in by the by about eighty four eighty five I kind of felt like Backstreets had a life that was maybe even separate from me. There are a couple other examples. The Beatles have had some fan magazines that have existed forever, but they're mostly out of the u k and they're this weird size, no offense to my friends in the u k but but they're weird sized paper and they're not like a real magazine as much. And then there's of course, Relics, the Grateful Dead magazine. Right. And I knew those people and that magazine has outlived uh, the Grateful Dead. And there've been a few other uh, long lived fanzines. There was a really excellent Dylan one. A-, a lot of the people that start these then contacted me and said, Backstreet's was the inspiration and that was that that was kind of surprising to talk to people who talked about that. So I certainly had no idea in 1980 handing out this four page thing that most people trashed, that it would have that kind of longevity and that it would in a way legitimize the idea that a fan magazine could cover news. Um, and that's, I think, what Backstreet's did at its best. Absolutely.
1: Another major leg- legacy that you've that you've created is the fact that it's a as a fan community, it's it's the biggest. Um, whether you're talking subscribers, back in I guess the mid '80s, I think was when you had your, your highest sub- subscriber count. Am I correct in that?
2: Uh, as far as I know, yes, but but I can't. I don't know what the statistics were in the latter era when when the magazine moved out of Seattle. But yeah, I mean, the Backstreets was on a lot of newsstands, um, which, which you know, we we hardly made any money from it being on a newsstand. The reality of shipping it and returns and all of that. But it was all over the world uh, when Tower Records again. Every it yep. seems like everything that comes out of my mouth sounds like I'm talking about the Telegraph because this is all <laughs> old technology. <laughs> Anybody remember Tower Records? You know, Tower Records was uh, you know, one of our main distributor and every tower records in the world carried Backstreet, So people from all over the world got access to it on that. And that, that, that carried the brand that wasn't a great financial thing really, but it, it got it out there. Um, I mean, no one would have known the internet was coming and, uh, the internet of course changes communication, but, uh, yeah, I mean it, it's it's been a long, strange ride, and uh, but the train
0: has uh, hit the you know has come back into the station at this point. It's funny when you mention Tower Records because I think back in the day when Tower Sunset would do the midnight sales of new records. I used to go in about 11.40, 11.45, and I would stand at the newsstand and read Backstreet's at their newsstand, even though I already had it because I was a subscriber, and I would sit there and thumb through the magazine and wait till they announced that they were pulling the albums out of the back and starting to sell them at midnight, and then I would buy whatever I was buying that week and go home and listen to it.
2: In a way, it sort of becomes an artifact of a time, both in my life and the life of a lot of people. And, and I get what you're saying. I mean, I my house is littered with print and not just Backstreets and The Rocket, the other magazine that I started and edited. there's a, I didn't start, but that I edited and ran for years. And then there's a few other magazines, kind of one-offs that I, I worked on um, as well on staff. And then I have countless books and other things. And I, I have almost every copy of Rolling Stone I ever got uh, in my life. And it's hard to not, it's hard to throw those away. I was looking at, you know, some of the early 70s Rolling Stones, which are the first ones I got when I was prepubescent. And, uh, you know, I, I just can't quite toss them because they they helped form who I was. I know the material is all available online, probably somewhere. Not a lot of it isn't, but uh, there's something about that that printed copy that really means a lot to me. I, I, emotions were always connected to music for me, so when I read in Rolling Stone a review by a writer named John Rockwell, who wrote for the New York Times, and he wrote a review of I think Neil Young's American Stars and Bars. And everything I thought about my adulthood changed when I read that review. And can I throw that old magazine away? No, because (laughs) uh, I might want to feel those feelings again and look at it. And it, 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 uh, you know, music journalism really meant something to a generation uh, to my generation. And uh, it, it, it changed uh, it changed the way music was marketed and thought of. and, And in a way it changed the art form. Now, trying to throw Backstreet's into that is I, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself by acting as if Backstreet's changed the world in that way, but it did help form the Bruce fan community. Oh, a hundred percent. And I'm proud of that, but also frankly, to get to this year, uh, I'm discouraged by that. Um, I think the, whether it's the end of Backstreet's or the way these ticket sales were handled, or in fact, just the way, that fan community has been handled by the organization for for fifty years. Uh, I think I think there's something wrong about that, and and it's it's not it's not what I imagine should have happened. I mean, you know, Pearl Jam's from Seattle. I know those guys. They base their fan club on Backstreet. Yes, yeah. and Pearl Jam. You know, if you're a member of that fan club. You know, they, they based everything on backstreets and the super sub ideas and all these kind of ideas, and they still have that loyal fan base that's gonna follow them to the end. I think Bruce and a few decisions made mostly in the last year, um has put some of that that lifelong commitment at uh at at risk. Um what with the ticket sales, with uh that fiasco and the dynamic pricing. Um, with the way that was even handled with a verified fan why on earth can't this this loyal fan base be rewarded with some kind of ability to buy tickets for the artists they care about instead it seems like it's the opposite and it's very frustrating you know also in seattle or out of seattle he's not He's not from here, but he lived here for a while. This artist named Zach Bryant, who's the one of the hottest country stars. He recorded an album at this studio up here that my son uh, works at. And when a former Navy guy who's a country kind of Yahoo dude, when he treats his fan base better than Springsteen does, something is wrong in the world. And I feel like I'm the only one voicing that. You guys as well and other people, okay. but... I'm also exhausted by the conversations I have with people who go, well, if people want to pay that much, who cares? If Bruce can get that money, there's right and wrong in the world. And if you love Bruce Springsteen's music, you loved it both because you like the music, but also it had themes and it had purpose to and meaning. And a lot of that purpose and meaning was about the idea of rights and wrongs in the world. And just to state it Outright, this tour was handled poorly. The way longtime fans were were handled was ex, done extremely poorly, and Bruce has lost uh, some of that fan base. At the, in the end, he and John Landau are going to say they are going to have the biggest grossing tour ever, but that comes at a price. The the part that's the hardest for me to witness is, you know, I'll go on a radio show talking about the show beforehand and you know, or or even if you guys are put this on Facebook and these right wing trolls now yeah. go on Facebook and they everything that comes up about Bruce now, it is forever tarnished by this. And you can't argue back and say it was a great show. It was worth the money. You can't argue that because the way Bruce and Landau handled this was done so poorly that they don't have the capacity anymore to have a pushback on that. They went for the money and they, you know, everybody's got a right to make a living in this world. Yes, this tour is expensive, but the dynamic pricing should have had an upper limit. There should have been percentages. And I don't know this for a fact because I didn't witness how the sale went, like looking over John Landau and Bruce's shoulder, but I have other friends that are artists and they have told me, absolutely, this is not Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster ends up being the evil. Every single decision involving tickets with how much the tickets are going to be and what percentage the dynamic pricing is going to go up and how quickly it's going to go up and is there an upper limit, those are all decisions that are made by the artist. So those decisions were made either by Bruce or John Landau, one in the same, and I tried to get Taylor Swift tickets. I can tell you that the dynamic pricing on her from my experience was about 30% what it was on Bruce Springsteen. I've tried a few other hot in demand tickets. I have not seen a show this year, whether it's Madonna Uh, McCartney, Taylor Swift, no one had the dynamic pricing thing go up as much as Bruce. So the people that paid four or $5,000 of, of which a lot of them have contacted me heartbroken, they thought that was the value of the tickets. And these are long-term fans. And in the end, they were suckers. And Bruce should never have treated his fans that way.
0: A hundred percent. And we've talked about this extensively, especially allowing the dynamic pricing in that first on-sale back in July to just spiral out of control. Uh, As Flynn will attest, I've said this a million times, I do sales all the time. I had never seen anything like that. Stones, McCartney, it just, they somehow, they blew it big time and they were rewarded with just the worst publicity you could possibly experience. I also, uh, in terms of mentioning Pearl Jam, I do want to point out, because we've also talked about this extensively, they used verified fan and dynamic pricing on tour 2022. And the difference is what you just mentioned. They have a mechanism with the 10 Club to allow their biggest fans to easily get tickets for 150 bucks, And then the people who aren't members of the 10 Club, if they want to pay $800, They had a chance to join the 10 club. They obviously decided not to, or they're people who just are happy to pay whatever they're going to pay. That's their right. But the mechanism is there to make sure that the biggest fans have an easy route to tickets. And you're 100% correct. That does not exist for Bruce. The verified fan usage to me is even worse than the pricing because to tell me which has now happened numerous times that I am not even allowed to look for a ticket is just absurd, and we've heard this over and over again from from other fans. I just don't know how they have allowed this to occur.
2: Yeah, well, uh, I I have my suspicions on who was involved in that decision. I think it boils down to two people um, whose names I've mentioned, but you can't blame it on Ticketmaster. You can't blame it no. on anybody. And the thing that was also heartbreaking to me, as you said, maybe the first week was a disaster. I thought they would adjust it, but I tried to get tickets for Vancouver, which uh, is in November, if I'm remembering correctly. But the tickets Mm. only went on sale like 10 days ago. Same dynamic pricing. The first tickets I got offered in Vancouver were $5,500 Canadian. Now, admittedly, that's a little cheaper than the $5,500 I saw on the Seattle on sale, but not by much. That's still a $4,200 ticket, and that's crazy. And um, they don't seem to have adjusted the paradigms, the the percentages, and they don't seem to have an upper... They must have some upper limit, but whatever they have, it's absurdly high, um, these tickets are not worth $5,000. Um, no. And then to even make the sin worse, Bruce's comments <laughs> to Rolling Stone, the only thing he said, which I think he waited 45 days or longer to respond and say something. Uh, here's a guy that if something politically was going on, he would, he would be on something right away and, and make his voice heard when things were wrong. His, when his only comments are, this is an expensive tour. And if anybody has a problem, they can ask for a refund on the way out. I didn't see a refund stand in (laughs) Seattle. And I do think there's a potential that Bruce may open himself up for a class action lawsuit. I know enough people that are really hurt that they bought the idea that they had to pay this. And I saw the Seattle show. It was great. Was it worth $5,500? For the people that paid that much, it was not in my music critic opinion, but of course that's up to everybody it's a it's a it's a, it's a free system, but this just should never have happened with bruce springsteen i i i i it, I'm aghast to even think that the fans would have been treated in this manner um and and that it would have gotten this far out, and that they wouldn't have adjusted it. You know, there was a point where maybe the first few were screwed up and then maybe Bruce could have said, you know what, in, in, in Seattle where people got screwed, I'm going to play three songs in the square. You know, wh- whatever. Give, 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 give people something that they feel they're getting some added bonus or I don't know. I, I personally think they should cancel the sale and redone it all with a upper limit on the dynamic pricing. And that there are artists who've done that. That's not unprecedented. I think that's what should have been done, but they had no intention of doing that. It appears.
1: No, they have gone full, full money on, on this one, and it's and they don't care. I was actually more aghast at what Landau said, uh, which was which that article came out right after the ticket sales, where he basically said that you know X percentage of tickets were affordable. But he wasn't the one buying the tickets. And I think he may have lost track of what actually affordable means.
2: Well, it depends if you're talking about French fine art or you're <laughs> talking about tickets and work a real job. But, um, you know, the affordable, and there have been one or two. There's one prominent Backstreets contributor who seems to go on Facebook every day and want to argue that. Who can prove how many tickets were sold for that much? There were people that bought them at X, Y, Z price. Not that I know, you know, um, almost everyone that I talked to paid, if they didn't pay dynamic pricing, they paid a significant amount.
0: Let's talk about the music. The ticket we know is a mess. It's just insane that they allowed this to happen. But at the end of the day, I mean, we're here for the music and, and you are... Probably the preeminent voice, or at least you were certainly for the 20 years you were at Backstreet, representing the Springsteen fan base. And you just saw the Seattle show. What did you think of it?
2: Well, it's such a mix. Um, you know, I wasn't writing about it, except that I'm going to write about it in this final issue of Backstreet. So I, I, I often am reviewing it for a newspaper or magazine, and I, was, I wasn't wearing that hat. Um, it it was a mix of the personal and professional for me. With the personal, um, you almost can't believe you're seeing Bruce Springsteen again, given everything that's happened the last few years. Um, I had some health issues. Uh, I wasn't able to see Broadway for some, for some uh, ambulatory issues. I just couldn't do it for a while. But I, I could go to this and now stand up for three hours. Um, so in a way, you, you can't believe you're there and you can't believe he's there. And you're, of course, the initial feeling is you can't believe he is that kind of freak of nature. And at his age, being able to play that well um, and to play for that long is still shocking to me. Uh, I felt that scene, Bruce, in 75. I I feel it seen in 2023. Um, He is a freak of nature. Uh, And I think musically, the one thing that I came away from the show more than anything else was just to go, that guy is a kick-ass guitar player. Um, why did they ever bring any other guitars in? No no offense to Nils and Steve, but, but Bruce is just an incredible guitar player. And that came through in a way that I guess it hadn't before for some reason, partially because seeing somebody his age... Uh, 72 going to turn or is he 72 or 70? He's actually on
0: the, ver- he's 73 going to be 74 later this year. 74.
2: To see a 73 year old. I mean, I saw Dick Dale and a number of other people who lived old and were incredible guitar players, but, but there aren't a lot of 73 year olds that can play like that. Um, you know, in, in that amount of physical energy. So I was, I was blown away by that. The other thing was just, I, there were parts of it. I just absolutely loved. And I'm like, I'm back, baby. You know, it's kind of like an Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, refrain I'm here. And then there was a part of me that just like, I just want to do this every night and follow it. Like I did the born in the USA tour. And, and, uh, it made me feel young and old at the same time and energetic and immortal. And then a few songs got thrown into the set that I wasn't as crazy about. Uh, the more I've stepped away from the moment, um, you know, the more I'm looking at what the what the set was supposed to be about and what it really was about. Then there's the personal. I, you know, one of the main reasons I even went to the show um, was that my 23 year old wanted to go to a Springsteen show with me and my first reaction was, we've, you've been to three Springsteen shows in your life. One, you were six months old. You don't remember <laughs> that, but you saw Vancouver and uh, you saw uh, the River Show. You've seen the best Bruce Springsteen show you're going to see. It's That's a little sad to to know that going in, in a way, but, but that's also partly mortality. Um, but the guy that was with us that saw the 1973 Troubadour show, probably felt that too. He's already seen the best show he's going to see. Um, so a lot of it for me was to be there with my son, to have the song Backstreet's come on, which not just because I named a magazine after it, that is the musical moment of the show. That, that song is played with more passion and more power than any other song in this entire set, in my argument. But then to also have my twenty-three-year-old, you know, put his arm around me and we watch it together—he knows it's mixed emotions for me. I started this magazine. Did I think Bruce and John Landau should have supported this fan community more? Yes, I do. Um, so there is a little bit of uh, sour grapes to some of that. Do, do am I upset about the ticket price? Yeah, I am. And yet, at the same point, that song was just played magnificently and it was a very powerful version, especially with the, the little story he added, uh, you know, to that and kind of gave a little more nuance to that song in a way. Um, but I was, I was a mess of emotions as I am right now in this podcast, there were things I loved about it. And there were things I'm just like, I hate this, this isn't working. Um, you know, so there, I, it was, uh, I, I lost count of how many Springsteen shows I've been to. I was at the show with a, Friend of mine who's seen five hundred and eighty. I've seen probably four hundred less of, than than he has, but I've seen better ones than he has in his five eighty. Um, but I gotta say, it 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 was in the. It's not even fair for me to rank the show against other shows when Bruce no. was a young man or when I was a young man. But but it 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 wasn't nearly as powerful, I think, as it could have been. Um, I think the song selection, Bruce did the show and put it together, thinking in a way that it's about mortality. The one little time he talks to the audience is during Last Man Standing, and that—that's the other best song of the night, and not a song that's one of my favorite Bruce songs. But the way he does that and talks and does that solo acoustically, and then going into Backstreets as he did in Seattle, um, that. That was the high point of the night. That was the part where I felt my hairs on my neck stand up. And I was like, yes, I can really feel that emotion on that. I also kind of came away with it remembering how great Bruce is acoustically. You know, how yeah. he can, how much, how great he can sing. Just him and his guitar, how, how great he is at communicating that. But there were too many rockers, too many party songs, too many songs that didn't seem to fit into the theme that seemed to be played just because they were reciting a greatest hits. And I'd still argue, I don't know what, you know, was happening at the shows uh, tonight or later on, but I don't know. I don't know if the set Seattle had the best set of the tour so far, uh, just by the addition of trapped and and dreams. Um, So uh, I had bugged Bruce to, Play trapped. That's one of the many songs I harassed him on. It I would have been nice if he played roulette in Seattle, given how much <laughs> I, uh, I've had over the years. But but trapped was pretty friggin' great, and and, and trapped in a way was also it's a powerful song. I, I'm not trying to say you know Candy's room isn't a powerful song, but it's not powerful the way trapped is. The dynamics of that. Quiet and loud. That's when Bruce really, really works. And there were too many songs that have the Glory Days tempo, which is not a tempo that I think as Bruce said, is Bruce at his worst. And that song I mean, Bruce- should have been retired thirty years ago. Um, and it it made no sense in the idea of doing a uh, a set that that is roughly about mortality it was the, I've hated the party songs. You know, when Bruce played for that very first show of Backstreets in 1980, if I remember correctly, October 26, 1980 at the Seattle Center Coliseum, I had front row seats. I'm like right there. Bruce danced with my girlfriend who later became my wife for a time when, you know, for Sherry Darlin and Crush on You and He wasn't pulling people on stage. He jumped down in the audience and danced with my wife or soon to be wife, who was a beautiful woman, got his attention. I hated the party songs then, Uh, uh, even though I love the river, but they really don't work when you're trying to also do last man standing or I'll see you in my dreams. There's a dichotomy between that, that, that doesn't work. And so, you know, again, this is all nitpicking. Bruce doesn't care what I'd say drop out of the set list. But if he ever did, drop out Johnny 99. That's great. Drop greed. out Burning Train. Drop out, you know. Wait, wait, did you just say drop out Burning Train? Yeah, I dropped that out one out myself. But
1: um, All right. So we're all about um, the new stuff. We want to hear that.
2: Yeah, I, I get that. But drop out Wrecking Ball. Play it only in New Jersey. Don't um, even play it in New Jersey. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I love 10th Avenue Freeze Out, but you don't need 10th Avenue Freeze Out, Dance in the Dark, Glory Days, Rosalita, Born to Run, and Thunder Road. If you can drop Born in the USA, you can drop Dancing in the Dark. If you can drop Born in the USA, you can drop Glory Days. Yes. And so you have a set that at times was very focused. And, and you know, you know we got trapped. We got Land of Hope and Dreams, which is one of my favorite, songs of all time. And is a great way to end a concert. Um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. That, that's the way I would recreate it. But I don't manage Bruce. And, uh, you know, that's even leaving out, let's play some other rare stuff for the fans that have followed this tour, you know, show to show. That's the other thing. The long-term fans aren't going to get rewarded on this show by, is it worth going to Portland? How you were in Portland, you know, yeah, you would have gotten trapped and you would have gotten, but is that worth an additional thousand dollars or more investment? I don't know, you know, Um, uh, but I don't expect somebody who's 73 to be mixing it up and playing audibles every night.
1: Well, he did last time out. So I'm, I'm kind of hoping that, that he, he resumes that when he, finally allows himself to open up the set list and get away from, from this incredibly focused show and start doing what he did at the end of 16.
0: Well, I think when he gets to cities where he's playing multiple nights, it's going to open up. I I just don't believe he's going to play the same set every night in Dublin where there's three shows or in New Jersey where there's three shows in the stadium tour. So we'll see. Uh, The similarity of the set list from night to night doesn't bother me as much as some people, because I know he is playing one show per city. And the truth is, even Flynn and I, that's why I've only been to two shows. He's only been to one show. We kind of suspected this was going to happen because several of the recent tours have started more static before he opened them up. But I I do think you you touch on an interesting point, especially with something like Johnny 99, which is not a greatest hit. There's really no reason Johnny 99 should be played every night. It's not a a song that fans are waiting for. You cite Born in the USA. He never plays Born in the USA, especially in the States. And what is it about Johnny 99 that has been played so many times now in recent tours? I think part of it is the size of the band and it gives them a chance to stretch them out. And it also gives them a rest much like Kitty's back, but I, definitely there are certain songs that could easily be switched out with to better choices. Yeah.
2: Well that, that, that's the, even some, you know, and nobody loves that you're ever going to talk to is going to love the wild and the innocent more than me, but I, I could do without Kitty's back, you know um, uh, it, it, it's not the same and, and, and no disparaging to the players, but, but that song was kind of Danny's song, in my opinion. Um, you know, he was a big part of it. The other thing that it lacked, and I'm really sounding like I'm bitching a lot, but I really enjoyed the night. And I thought it was a great concert, but uh, I missed the tender songs. We got almost none of the tender songs. So imagine the way The Wish is in Broadway, how tender that song is. You got a little bit of that in Backstreets, you know, but. There weren't a lot of these songs that, that at least to me, you know. And then, of course, you know, look at the songs that were on um, Tunnel of Love.
0: Oh well, yeah, you're You're preaching to the choir there. (laughs) I do think to to be fair, looking at the show, I I think it is difficult for audiences today. You know, we have to look at where we are. Everyone has a cell phone, and I don't want to sound like oh you know, 30 years ago, we did it this way, like, but everyone has a cell phone today. They're, they're out. And people are watching shows differently. So I do think all artists, including Bruce, he's got to give the audience some of the stuff that you're talking about, whether it's dancing in the dark. I don't think it has to be dancing in the dark every night and glory days every night. He could rotate them to other heads, but he's got to give them some red meat because he is doing last man standing in a very quiet arrangement in an arena before 18,000 people. He is ending the show with I'll see you in my dreams, which is a gorgeous, again, very quiet arrangement. So I, I think the way today's audiences are, some of it just has to happen. I it, it, I don't think we're going to see shows from Bruce or anyone else. I, I found this even with Pearl Jam last year and certainly with other artists I see They've got to give the audience something. It can't just all be rarities in an arena.
1: Bowie, Dylan, Marley.
2: I agree with you that the red meat has to be there some of it but Bruce could also just say two lines before Glory Days he you know he hardly talks at all from the stage he could say I wrote this song you know about a young a younger man but it it feels different now feels special even now as an older man if he just at sold it that way I didn't feel that he sold those greatest hits Um, And I think with a tiny bit of context, not as much as Broadway, not as much stories, but a tiny bit of context, even some of those older chestnuts he could pull off. But what were you going to say, Flynn?
1: I think there can be a balance between giving all red meat to the to the masses, as well as giving a few rarities to uh, to the hardcores. It doesn't have to be 25 greatest hits. It can be 23 greatest hits and two rarities. And I just think that he's not even, he's not throwing a bone
0: to, to the hardcores in that way. See, I disagree a little with that because I don't feel the show is mostly made up of greatest hits. In fact, as we've talked before, There's a rather inexplicable absence of certain of his biggest hits. Tunnel of Love has never played. Streets of Philadelphia has never played. Obviously, Born in the USA has never played in the United States. There's a whole lengthy list of songs that charted high for him that he doesn't play that the audience would respond to it. I think you know the Johnny 99s that's what makes that one so in a way interesting but also inexplicable because there's not a single member of the audience walking into the arena going I really hope to hear Johnny 99 tonight
2: and there's not anybody walking out going like I heard something really special we got to hear Johnny 99 um but 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 you know Bruce gets to call these shots but what we have seen before is it seems much more attention i mean bruce is a guy that 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 remastered and retracked his albums over months to get the right running order this show doesn't feel like that attention to detail was done and i don't know why um uh so but, but to me, it did not feel taut, T-A-U-T. It did not feel like a taut Bruce show. Um, that's why I'm missing the Darkness on the Edge of Town tour, which every single performance felt. It was, the string was pulled tight. Now, at 73, can you do that? No, but the way the set was at that point, it, it felt on fire every night. Speaking of you know hits, I'm on fire was also a huge hit. You know, yeah, that doesn't very happen. rarely played. If you throw in Born to Run and Rosalita, you don't need the others uh, at the end, in my opinion. But but that's just me. I don't think anyone's going to ask for a refund if they don't hear Glory games.
0: I'll tell you, I hear from people all the time, casual fans. We've been hearing it for years, going all the way back to the reunion tour when he didn't play a lot of the Born in the USA album that people are, why isn't he playing born in the USA? Why, uh, it, it, people want to hear those songs and we know why it's the same reason the stones go out there and play their 18 biggest hits. People want to connect back to their moment in time when they first heard these songs. And it's totally understandable. The thing I think about it is that I really, and we talked about this in the episode we did for our subscribers last week. I, I, I'm totally blown away by the level of performance considering the ages of the performers on the stage. It's really remarkable. And and what I want to take away from it, it is, if this is the last time, I really have both nights that I've seen the show felt a, a huge sense of joy. I think you mentioned it a little earlier that I'm in the audience, Bruce is standing there and, and playing rock music and we're having that communal experience. And someday in the near future... We're not going to have that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So let's leave the nitpicking aside and say the musicianship of the E Street Band, I also came away just stunned by that. Uh, I forget how old Max is, but if there is another drummer his age that is as sharp as he is, I don't know it, you know, outside of jazz, um, because he is just a powerhouse between he and Gary. They are just lock on solid. Um, you know, the entire night. The horns are great, great nuance, great, great subtleness um, when they're used. Uh, I wanted to hear them do something like throw in, you got the horns. Bruce joked at some point about, I don't want to go home. Play that for God's (laughs) sakes, you know? Um, But, uh, you know, it's a great band. Even the, the background singers are great. Everybody on that stage is playing at a level of musicianship. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, it's kind of sad for me to even see how great Jake Clemens is because it, it, it makes me miss his uncle and also reminds me there were times Clarence wasn't entirely sharp for an entire show, but you know, he, he, he gets almost more, uh, spotlight than any other member of the band. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know. They all were phenomenal. They, they all played great. They were amazingly tight. Um, And then above it all, Bruce on guitar just made me remember that when he started, you know, he, he wanted to, you know, wrote a letter to Jeff Beck wanted to be a guitar slinger and wanted to essentially be the Allman brothers when he started out and he's achieved that. Um, You know, he, he is that level guitar player at his age and, that was phenomenal.
0: I'm just going to interject. We actually do have two tour premieres tonight on the show going on at St. Paul. Pay Me My Money Down, which I think is thematic to the area in some way. And Working on the Highway has been played tonight. All well, right. I'm so
2: glad I missed that. Working on the Highway for me for for 40 year, however long it has been, is like the cue to go to the bathroom. Uh,
0: yeah, but... Uh, well you a, followed the you followed the Born in the USA tour I, I, how incredible was that on a night to night basis
2: it was incredible and and it also was It was, even though shows were different quite a bit from show to show not just with song selection but with performance and uh, I could handle working on the highway the first 30 times I heard it but you know uh, but yeah, um you know, Born in the USA was a great tour. It's not my favorite Bruce album, and we're talking about everyone that's the red meat everybody wants. It's the album that he unfortunately sold the most of and is known the best for. Um but the Born in the USA tour wasn't every song from Born in the USA every night, you know. He was still working that into the the body of work and um there was still a story of a kid growing up from Jersey and, and uh, that, that was sort of being weaved into the born in the USA tour. Um, I, I just wish on this tour that the idea of mortality, if he would have spoken a few more times and thrown in a couple other songs that had done that, I think the emotional impact of the eight the, the tour would have been so much greater, but I'm glad I miss working on the highway. I'll tell you that um, <laughs> there, there were times Bruce is talking about last man standing and talking about the members of the Castiles. That was an emotional moment that hit me, not just for the band to think about Clarence and Danny gone, uh, to think about my other friends. Uh, you know, there are four or five people that I saw Bruce shows with. There's a group of tapers and friends. You guys have probably heard their names. You know, at least one of them that are, we're out of Tacoma and, and, uh, Um, there were four people in that and, uh, two are dead since the last time Bruce was in town. And those guys made tapes of every show I ever went to. So I would hear the show later through their ears. And, and those two guys, Stan Gutowski and Jared Hauser, it just made me really sad that I was seeing a show without them, um, and that, that they were gone. And my best friend in the world saw every Bruce show that I saw after 88, with me, whether it was Christic Institute or bridge show or something, he always went with me and, and, and he's died since the last time Bruce has toured. So there was a lot of thoughts of that in my mind. And then also I could feel, I could feel that grief and loss from Bruce. Um, I could in the songs he picked and I could feel it in a way, I think, you know, Bruce has said a lot of poignant things over the world, Over the years, but that one line he said, however many years ago, that somebody asked if it was hard to be on stage, and he said, The hard part is when you get off stage and you put the guitar down. In a way, if to me there was a theme that I saw out of him, it was him trying to, by performing, by this phenomenal performance of a 73 year old, it's him trying to run from those ghosts, the mortality that is waiting for him, for us and that that has that already found some of the people that he grew up with and loved. Um, I, that That's what I came away from it. And and that's a very poignant and moving thing. It, there were points where I had tears in my eyes, you know, seeing the show, and certainly Last Man Standing to Backstreets was the high point for me. I think but, that's a great way to, to wrap it up. You really
1: summed up what he's doing what he wants to do on this tour and what what this tour means to fans well, at least when they're in in the in the feeling of the music and not necessarily focused on the the outside external factors that unfortunately led up led up to this tour.
2: Yeah, and part of the hard part is you walk into the venue, you know, here I am jabbering on about darkness and um I'm not sure if I can remember the date off the top of my head, but when he played the Paramount in the summer of 1978, you know, I had second row seats to that. You guys are too young to imagine that. But, you know, my girlfriend at the time, and I got in a huge fight, like moments before the show started. So even one of the greatest shows I ever saw in my life was tainted by that. We we always have these experiences. But in a way, I think the music is there for us. It's almost even better if you've had a bad day when you walked in, um, because the music carries you away to this place of imagination. I felt that at times on the show, but admittedly, I, I didn't feel it as much as I have on other shows. I felt my mortality. I felt Bruce's mortality. I felt the souls of the departed, um, and but I'm not sure other people that don't follow Bruce as closely would have come away with that theme. That's why in a way I thought he needed to sell that to the standard greatest hits fans more because that's a powerful message. And, uh, but that's what I came away from it from. And I sure as hell hope I live to see another Bruce Springsteen show. Um, Maybe one without working on the highway. Uh, Maybe one with you guys in the crowd, maybe one, you know I, What I want, again, is I want the Christic show where everybody comes together for one show, where you feel like everyone you know is in the room. And I may never get that, but um, that, that's my fantasy Bruce show of the future. Something where you don't know what's going to come out of his mouth at any given moment. And, uh, um, you know, let's hope I live that long. Let's hope my Christmas wish... 2026, I get that show again. But if not, I have tapes in an analog world on cassette (laughs) that that bring me back to that moment. And we have digital thing for the chance to talk to you guys, which I was excited about. And it uh, makes me feel good to talk to you guys because it just reminds me, I'm not the only person who this stuff means a lot to. I think that ultimately in the end was what Backstreets also did is it made you feel not crazy. You felt like there were other people that this meant a lot to. And that's what your podcast is doing. That's what Backstreets did for all those years. It it felt like you weren't alone. And uh so I appreciate the chance to talk to you guys about it.
0: No, we really appreciate your being here and as we said, when all four of you guys were on, uh, what it meant to us, especially me in the 80s, to have Backstreet's out there and to read what was going on. And it did connect me to other people, even though I didn't know them. I didn't know you. I would call the hotline and hear Eric. I didn't know Eric. I, you know, I never thought that I would know Eric. And it just it it gave life to something that was just going on really in my bedroom at the time. Uh, you know, I had seen one show. And it was just like, hey, this is happening out there. There's this community and you can go and, and meet people and have friends who have the same love of the music. And that's really what it that, that's what our podcast is about. And 40 years later, you know, Flynn and I together and the people we go and hopefully we will see a show with you one day. That's what it's still all about. So even with all the other noise and the crap going on, that's why I still love it. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, yeah. maybe the dynamic pricing uh will go the way of the telegraph machine and uh um, maybe there'll be a better future with uh with an easier access. But I'm willing to have my eyeball scanned to prove that it's me and to uh not go if if I get sick, I'll just eat the ticket. I would prefer that than the system that's out there now. So maybe I'll become a Zach Bryan fan. And, you know, I'll start a fanzine about him, uh, but maybe not.
0: Um, I, I would yeah. just like to be verified one of these days.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I don't think I talked to you guys, but when the initial on sale went, I was on, I in the last few years with the political news and COVID and everything else, I would go through periods of not reading anything on the internet for like a week. So I wasn't verified the first time through as it was I didn't even I wasn't reading anything I told people don't tell me any news even if it's a Bruce Springsteen verified on sale don't call and tell me anything that could potentially be bad news so yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense to me. But
0: We will let you go. The one thing that they definitely blew many years ago was not having some kind of ticketing apparatus, which so many of the other bands are using incredibly successfully. So we can beat a dead horse on that. It's obviously not going to change. And, uh, you know, that's just a mistake that they made. Well, yeah, well nice talking to you guys.
2: And, uh, um, you know, hopefully uh, I will see you in other shows on this tour. So,
1: sounds good. Thank you again so much. It's an honor to talk to you. And uh, as Hal said at at the start, seventeen-year-old Flynn is kind of would be freaking out right now. And actually, fifty-one-year-old Flynn was. This he was more nervous talking to you than he was than he's been in a long time. So, so thank you, and we owe a lot to you. You're more than welcome. Yes, thanks for doing this.
0: Once again, that was Charles R. Cross, the founder of Backstreets. And again, just what a treat for both me and Flint to have him on, to think that I would have been talking to Charlie for an hour about Bruce when I was a teen. It just, it, it would have blown my mind.
1: Oh, absolutely. Blew my mind tonight as 51-year-old Flynn and, and 17-year-old Flynn, as I said, would have been would have been losing his mind, so... Yeah, that was a tremendous honor, and we really appreciate him coming on.
0: And again, we just want to let the audience know that we've also asked Chris Phillips from Backstreet's On to discuss his decision to shut down the magazine. So far, he has respectfully declined. But if that changes, we will look forward to talking to him at some point in the future. And with that, I'm going to wrap things up. None But the Brave is produced by Bull Market Entertainment and presented by Evergreen Podcasts. Our Patreon page is patreon.com backslash podcast. If you want to reach out to us on Twitter, there we're at Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm
1: Flynn McClain. Thanks again. One more time to Charles R. Cross for joining us, and we'll see you further on up the road.
0: Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you.